Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what would it take to be a martyr? Like, like what What are the qualities that, that one needs? Um, let's see. Uh, well, you wouldn't want to be someone who's too... And I mean a real martyr, not... I mean, it's like, like just... Yes. Dripping off the page, Mm -hmm. um, stained glass window kind of a thing. uh, Yes. Gory pages of a history book. Okay. All right. I'm not just talking like, oh, he's a martyr because he refuses to use the new coffee machine. Right, right. You're not going, hey, get off the cross. Someone needs the wood. Yeah. It's not one of those martyrs. Okay. First of all, you probably don't want to be too concerned with materialism. I'm going to say you don't want to be a big shopper, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd be willing to wear a potato sack, kind of be a little bit smelly. Uh, sit in one position for a long time, sort of meditating on the world and your purpose, right? Right. Um, what would make a, like if this was a want ad, what else would we stick in there? Hmm. Well, real, you have to be extremely committed to an idea or a belief. Right. Something. Must have um, high ideals. Yes, yes. So something that, again, is stronger than, ooh, I have to play this new video game when it comes out next month and stronger even than one's own natural um, affinity for life itself. Okay. Um, hmm, must be able to withstand extreme pain in various forms and possible death. Yes. And I think this is, this is the, the aspect of it that uh, interests me the most at this moment anyway. And, and it's certainly what we're going to uh, spend the most time with in this podcast because growing up, I was, I've always been fascinated by these, these images of, of martyrs, um, uh, you know, especially in the Catholic tradition. As someone in the Western world, you just kind of grow up seeing these things, mm-hmm. and, you know, be it in actual like church literature or, or studying like uh, just the, the history of Western civilization. You just yeah. see all these just gory images. It probably pays to to just qu- quickly also just to define where we get the word martyr. OK, yeah, uh, the, it comes from the late Greek term martyr, which uh, comes from martus witness. And, uh, and the idea is that you're you're witnessing something, you're bearing testimony to some fact or faith mm-hmm. with your blood. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with yeah. your blood. With your yeah, blood. I think that's yeah. the crux of it right there. Because the, the end game of being a martyr is not necessarily to die, right? But I think one of the things that is so... Well, anybody can die. Everybody dies. Well, exactly. But to, to, to uh, actually try to do it so that you're... You know, immortalized and celebrated. I mean, it just, it's just sort of a byproduct, like, oops, I might die. And so I think, but this is one of the most intriguing things about a martyr, at least which captures our attention and why it's so dramatic is that these are people who are so committed to something that they are willing to withstand such pain. It also turns the, the typical social and just even uh, evolutionary contract on its head, you mm-hmm. know, because it's, it's suddenly like, here's the person that uh, that when the authority said, hey, you need to do this or we'll kill you, he mm-hmm. said, go ahead. I believe more in the idea that that uh, that I should have this freedom or that I should be able to say this, that or the other or live this, that or the other. I believe in this more than I believe in uh, the importance of my own skin. Oh, yeah, or that Joan of Arc, for instance, she had such a strong vision from God that King Charles VII should be, you know, put on the throne that she was willing to um, to, to suffer death and, yeah. you know, of course, was burned at the stake. So this is this is pretty heavy stuff in that respect. Um, and it really is very interesting from a psychological perspective of pain, because we know that psychological factors play a huge role in the perception of pain. Right now. But before we break down some of the uh, uh, the, the, psych- the psychology and the science of this, um, 
let's run through a few examples. And yeah, and uh, it's important to note that that so much in in martyrdom and in the history of martyrs in in any culture, in any religious tradition or secular tradition. We're talking about something that has to do with the politics of memory. I mean, it, these yeah. are these are ultimately they may, they may have been people at one point or another, but they become stories, and stories are told by individuals uh, with a bias of some sort. So, a person may die truly believing in something; they may die a martyr, and but if no one's going to tell the story, then they're not really a martyr. Right. So, in other words, we're going to talk about a couple of martyrs just as examples, but that doesn't mean that these people necessarily. Uh, uh, actually, uh, perform certain tasks or maybe were even, um, that suffered. I mean, there's, I guess what we're trying to say here is that there's, there could be some fictionalization of things that are not that well documented yeah. in the past. And we're not celebrating martyrism. Uh, we just think it's, or martyrdom. We just think it's fascinating. Yeah. It, I mean, it is pretty cool in a very in a morbid way yeah. uh, to me too. Uh, that's my personal opinion. But, uh, all right. You have like, uh, Saint Antipas of, uh, Pergamum. Uh, roasted to death in a bronze bull in 92 AD. Which in a like, bronze bull. Yeah, which is like a big bronze bull. And mm-hmm. when you put somebody in it, and then apparently as they're shrieking and, and dying inside the bull, um, it makes this echoed sound. So that the okay. bronze bull sounds like an actual bull. This makes sense because uh, way, way back in the day, this was big pageantry, right? Like you wanted, yeah. you wanted good acoustics on this. Well, and this is key too, pageantry. Most of your martyr deaths, especially the big ones out of medieval tradition, they tend to be pretty dramatic because mm-hmm. there's a lot of drama caught up in the whole martyrdom idea. Isaiah is pretty interesting. This was an 8th century BC prophet in the kingdom of Judea. This is Old Testament stuff. But... uh he was rebranded in the Middle Ages as this martyr that was sawed in half right down the middle with this big mm-hmm. kind of tooth saw. Uh, and what's really fascinating about this dude is if you look at some of these medieval texts, the way that he is depicted, they make a, a kind of cruciform image okay. with like the saw going across and his body up and down. So it ends up looking like a cross. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's rebranded as this Christian saint, which is, which is interesting and tells us a lot about the idea of martyrdom again as politics. Right. You didn't think there was that marketing existed way back then, but yeah, apparently. Right. And then, uh, oh, and then a, another couple of uh, examples from, or another example from uh, the medieval tradition, especially would be Saint Bartholomew. This guy is said to have been martyred uh, in Armenia. And according to, accounts vary on exactly what was done. In one, he was beheaded, um, and then others, he's crucified upside down. Mm-hmm. But the most popular tradition holds that he was flayed alive, that he was skinned. How chihuahua. Yeah. So in uh, in various works of art mm-hmm. and in, in one really stunning uh, statue that was made in 1562, you see him depicted as this skinless man, mm-hmm. like something out of... Uh, out of Hellraiser yeah, I was or, just thinking that, yeah. or that Robbie Williams video that oh. I sent you the other day where he's stripping and then he strips off his skin and he's dancing around. I was so unprepared for that. <laughs> I was lulled into to, uh, submission there. You, what do you think was going to happen? Because he was already down to his underwears, right? And I, then, yeah, uh, I guess it was just like the, the beat and the, yeah. hey, DJ. I just didn't think it was going to be like, okay, he's going <laughs> to self-flay himself. Yeah. So, uh, so he, he tends to be depicted like that mm-hmm. with a flaying knife in one hand and his own skin thrown over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. This is Bartholomew, not Robbie Williams. St. Bart, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, and, and he tends to have this look on his face, especially in that statue. It's like a serene look, like a look like, hey, I'm. Hey, so, this doesn't hurt. Yeah. So I skin myself. Big deal. It's um, just a flesh wound. Yeah. Which, which again comes down to that whole, like the idea of the martyr as turning the typical rules of pain and suffering on their head. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see accounts among uh, various Native American peoples where there, there's a there's a certain amount of of 
torture that ends up uh, playing into some of these tribal groups, uh, and it becomes part of this culture. And you, so, you, so you have these uh, these stories of individuals who were captured, uh, individuals from from rival groups. Mm-hmm. And when they were tortured, they didn't cry out or they didn't say anything, and in doing so, shamed their tormentors. And we'll uh, talk a little bit about that too, like yeah. how we actually have some cases of this that are, are documented. Right. Uh, but let's uh, just talk about a couple of modern martyr examples of what some people think of as martyrs. Yes. Uh, one uh, in particular, uh, especially, would be um, Thich Quan Duke, mm-hmm. the uh, Vietnamese uh, Buddhist monk uh, who burned himself to death at a busy on a busy Saigon uh, intersection on June 11th, 1963. Everyone has probably seen an image of this before because it's one of the most iconic images of the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm Brown won a Pulitzer Prize for the photo, and it's you know this black and white stark image of this this figure seated in mm-hmm. uh, like a meditative position, uh, legs folded. And just engulfed in flames. Right. And, and reports, uh, eyewitnesses say that he never screamed. There was some flinching, of course, but that's, you know, of course, going to happen with your muscles mm-hmm. uh, and your skin reacting to that. But uh, he practiced a very severe ascetic lifestyle. And he uh, had, a, of course, an extreme meditation practice. It was considered a bodhisattva. I know I'm saying that wrong, um, but at the time of his death and that essentially that he was enlightened. So, um Again, here's an example of withstanding extreme pain. Right. And that one's more interesting that it is a more contemporary example because, because again, it often you can imagine like somebody dying horribly for a cause. And then mm. the people who carry that cause, of course, they're going to say, Oh, but he was, he was, he or she was bigger than the pain because the cause is that important. This is one of the themes that's explored in Umberto Echo's The Name of the Rose that I, uh, I've always found really interesting. There's a, there's a martyred um, heretic that is, is not a character in the book, but is referred to a lot. This Fra del Sino, who is a, into like a 13th century poverty heretic, believed that uh, that everyone should, that the church should be poor, that everyone should be poor, and uh, and should renounce all material possessions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, the the young young character in the book encounters one telling of the tale in which he rises above the pain mm-hmm. and is serene through all these savage things that are done to him. And then in another account uh, that is supposedly the true account, we learn that the individual died just a really horrible death and responded in the way, typical way one might. Mm-hmm. So, oh, but we have one, of course, one uh, one more modern martyr to uh, to mention, right? Yeah, Mahatma Gandhi. Now, oh, some yeah. people might say, well, I don't know that I consider Mahatma Gandhi a true martyr, while other people say, actually, this is a really good example of a martyr because this is someone who campaigned for home rule in India and helped to defeat colonialism and did that as uh, in a similar way that you had talked about, which was kind of shaming the government Mm -hmm. and doing that through hunger strikes. Um, He was in prison several times um, and he was whittled down to the bone. I mean, we're not talking like he just denied himself a a piece of cheesecake. I mean, this this is this is another form of pain to endure. Right. Um, And you'll actually see this is really interesting. They've seen studies before that people who are anorexic actually have um less uh, susceptibility to pain because you do sort of get in this this mindset where you're denying your body um, and you're you're living in this kind of extreme situation. But, you know, it's interesting to look at Mahatma Gandhi and although he um, he did die uh, and he was actually murdered by a fellow Hindu mm-hmm. who was disappointed that uh, Gandhi could not stop the partitioning between Pakistan and India. Essentially, what we're talking about here is Hindus versus Muslims, right? 
he was martyred in a in a certain way. I guess some people could perceive that because of his commitment to sort of saying an ecumenical uh, way of embracing all cultures and all religions. So again, an, another example. You know, okay. he he wasn't. We're not talking about skin flaying here, uh, but these are you know extreme acts uh, done by people. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to really head into the science of all this and to what some of the various neuroscientists and psychologists have to say about the way that we experience pain and how various martyrs in the past may have overcome uh, this suffering. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, we're back. And, uh, Julie, you have uh, something to share about the Shaolin monks. Yeah, I want to talk kung fu. Like, we're talking real Shaolin monks, not the... um Film Shaolin monks. No, no, okay. we're talking the real thing, the, the ones that inspire martial arts movies, really. Okay. Um, Shaolin monks, uh, it's actually, they're a sect of Mayahana Buddhism monks, mm-hmm. and they're concerned with meditation and martial arts. And just, just a couple of facts to throw out there to, to give you some context about this. Kung Fu has been practiced in China since 200 BC, and it was always thought of as a practice of devotion. Okay, so that's really important here. And the leading Shaolin Kung Fu school was actually established 1,500 years ago, believe it or not. Um, but these guys develop extraordinary physical skills through training over many, many years. And the basis of this is pain control or pain management. Um, and, the, and they really acclimate themselves to be able to withstand this kind of pain. And some of it's through meditation. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is actually through the Kung Fu. I mean, we are talking about, and this is going to sound kind of silly, almost like uh, Chinese water torture in some respects, but, you know, punching a huge vat of beans for hours and hours because they know that, that you know, the hands are so sensitive. Mm-hmm. The idea is to desensitize the nerves in your hands. So it's about you feel enough pain that it mm-hmm. desensitizes the nerves in the same in, in a similar way that, say, if one uh, abuses a substance, uh, you end up yeah. sort of frying the pathways. Yeah, but it's still pretty much like, you know, mind over ma- matter. Um, there's a 1934 book by Jin Jing Song entitled Training Methods of the 72 Arts of the Shaolin, and it documents a range of skills that can be acquired, such as causing internal damage to an opponent using oh. a one-fingered punch. Oh, the Buddha finger. The Buddha yes, finger, the Buddha yeah. finger, yes. Uh, being able to perform handstands on two fingers and being able to break solid objects with the heel of the palm. Uh-huh. Uh, but they also, like, just just for fun, they'll just take, like, you know, a, I don't know, like a stack of, like, five bricks on their head, and someone will, like, karate chop them on their heads. For fun? For fun. I don't is that I don't know that that sounds very Buddhist that they're doing it. For I fun. say that for fun <laughs> because you know I was looking at some great video of them and essentially these are a bunch of ten year old kids uh-huh. and some of them start younger and you know at the age of ten they're they're getting up at four o'clock in the morning and they're running up this hill in twenty minutes actually a mountain that takes about an hour and a half for the average adult to scale and then they're walking down hands and knees 
Okay, this doesn't sound like fun. But still, I mean, this is, you know, that age, you have tons of energy, right? Yeah. Um, so walk up some mountains, break some bricks. And they're, they're so much more well-behaved when they get back to the monastery. Exactly, exactly. But it is fascinating to see this because they also have a yoga tradition in this. So mm-hmm. they're doing martial arts. They're doing these yoga moves. And they are so well-disciplined. And, I mean, they're doing these for hours and hours and these drills, uh, these combat moves that they're essentially just imprinting in their brains and their bodies so that it becomes second nature. And one of the principles too is uh, Qigong. I'm sure you've heard about this too. I believe it's a, a type of martial arts. And it's the idea that fire energy can actually emanate from your abdomen. And you can... you can, This is like fire breath? Kind yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. And that you can actually direct it to uh, susceptible parts of your body or sensitive parts of your body like your neck. Uh-huh. So you could direct this energy to your neck and then someone could punch the 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 holiness out of your neck and you'd be completely fine. And they do this. Like these are these are the the uh sort of tasks that they do on for hours. Huh. It's pretty amazing. But I mean it does it sort of makes sense because th- that they could be able to do this because of that practice, um the repetitive nature and meditation. If you think about meditation, your heart slows, you're pumping less blood, the muscles relax. And when you relax the muscles, this is really key because it means less tension and less tension means less pain. And I was just thinking about when we were doing some research on lightning strikes. Uh And I remember we came across something about a guy who was in the thralls of a tornado um, and he was struck by a lamp. So he was rendered unconscious, but his body was thrown across the field and he was perfectly fine. And they think that's because he wasn't uh, able to tense his body and react. Uh, this is this is kind of like how you hear um, accounts of individuals in wrecks where if yeah. they, where intoxicated individuals end up surviving a wreck because they're not there enough to tense up. Right, right. So imagine if you're this monk and you have gone through this incredible training, mind and body, then you could slow your heart rate and you have like these mad skills where, <laughs> you know, you could defend mm-hmm. yourselves and, or you defend yourself. And then if you were to be struck, you could negate that strike. Huh. Could negate that pain. Wow. Yeah, dude. Well, speaking of meditation, I ran across some uh, stuff here by American psychiatrist Robert Lifton, mm-hmm. um, who did a lot of work looking at like Holocaust survivors and, and all. Uh, Yale and Harvard guy, big medicine in the in the field. Uh, he described uh, survivors of brainwashing and other psychological deprivation techniques applied by the Chinese government against captive missionaries. And he attributed their mental survival to practicing meditation, to recalling and reciting poetry, uh, scripture, other literature. Essentially, they end up living living in this imaginal process to expand a very limited, restricted physical environment, which calls to mind. We, we did a, in a previous episode about isolation, mm-hmm. about how when you're in an isolated environment, it begins to to rather quickly play tricks on the mind. The mind is starved of stimuli and ends right. up having to to grasp onto other things to get by. Right. And, and that some of these people had actually cognitive deficiencies after right. uh, having you know, been isolated for years. Yeah. And, uh, and anyway, um, uh, Lifton found that people who were able to in these uh, these situations of isolation and and, uh, and this is, you know, isolation is a form of torment, mm-hmm. uh, were able to reach out and and just say, cling to this bit of scripture, cling to this prayer, mm-hmm. cling to like create some imagined reality to make up for what's lacking in the physical environment. Um which which I found pretty interesting. Which is a distraction for your mind, right? right. Which we, we always have talked about how the, the mind needs a bone to chew on. Right. And then of course there's self hypnosis as well, mm-hmm. which is uh which is a, an, an area that is less um 
I mean, hypnosis itself and exactly how it works is, is less understood than, uh, than other aspects of pain management for sure. But there, there have been studies into how IBS patients can use self-hypnosis. And this is, of course, uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found they can reduce contractions in the bowel, something that's not normally possible under conscious control. And their, uh, their bowel lining also becomes less sensitive to pain. Okay. And I actually, when I was in college, I had a, um, I had an abnormal psychology professor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a he was well, he was teaching abnormal psychology. Well, he was also a little abnormal, I All guess. Right. But but he mentioned that he was really into the idea of, of self uh, hypnosis, and he he said that he had worked with a former student who was having to go in and have this technique performed, where they take the little camera and they stick it up the urethra into the bladder. Oh my! Yeah, and they were having to do it on a regular basis, and mm-hmm. it was extremely painful for this guy. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't just put him under each time because yeah. it's a bit much to go for on such a regular basis to be knocked out for this procedure. Mm-hmm. So he would freak out with the pain, and they would have to hold him down and stuff. And it was just an ugly situation for everybody concerned. Uh, so they taught he uh, began learning self hypnosis, and supposedly by the end of the training, he was able to calm himself enough that that he only felt the tip of the camera poking through into his bladder towards the, the end of the uh, wow. insertion. Wow. Well, you know, I was thinking about this, too, even with the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this, that the, this promise sometimes that um, the pain will be alleviated will automatically uh, make the um, endorphins in your body kick in and opiates right. kick in. So sometimes it really is mind over matter. Um, this is from a Scientific American article, Daring to Die. Uh, they were talking, actually talking about the psychology of suicide, but this is certainly, certainly related. It says, it is not enough to want to die. To intentionally end their own life, people need the will to carry out their plans. This resolve depends on factors such as fearlessness and being able to tolerate pain and to act impulsively. The latest research shows that such fearlessness can be conditioned. Those who gain experience with pain, whether from abuse by others or by their own hands, gradually improve their ability to tolerate discomfort. They also get used to the idea of harming themselves, huh. which kind of plays into this question that we that has come up uh, before when we've talked about this. Uh, you know, is someone a masochist or a martyr? At what point? You know, and um, uh, another really interesting uh, study came up. It's a 2009 study, and geneticist Mashi Sif of McGill University and his colleagues showed that childhood abuse appears to produce specific patterns of so-called epigenetic marks on the DNA of brain cells in people who later killed themselves. Huh. So uh, it kind of, again, there's a, this relationship between pain and psychology in the body. Well, speaking of masochism, which you mentioned uh, uh, there, uh, I did run across some uh, stuff from Don Richard Rizzo, uh, who wrote a book called uh, Personality Types Using uh, the Enneagram for Self-Discovery. And uh, he uh, he wrote about uh, uh, the uh, masochistic personality disorder as, as defined by the American Psychiatric Association. Mm-hmm. And there are various levels of it. But in, in one uh, case, we're talking about an, an unhealthy level of masochistic uh, personality disorder. They said that it can can, uh, manifest as uh, manipulative and self-serving, instilling guilt, putting others in debt, uh, self-deceptive about one's own motives and behavior, domineering and coercive uh, feelings entitled uh, to anything uh, they want and others. And then having this like victim and martyr. Okay, uh, so it tips the scales of power in a relationship. Like I've suffered so greatly that therefore you should feel sorry for me and... Yeah, and it uh, give me it, a candy bar now. Yeah, exactly. And then there's the uh, there's sort of the opposite, the idea of, of people that are immune to pain. Oh yes, okay. So I, I uh, am, am watching one of the Stieg Larsson movies. Uh-huh. 
I, uh, this is the, the girl became, who kicked the hornet's nest, the girl who girl touched who, the cat on the belly, mm-hmm. the girl who set her hair on fire, uh, <laughs> a sandwich in its wrapper. Yeah. All those. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, and I'm not going to, um, spoil any plots here, but that came up and I thought that was really fascinating. Huh. My, um, my dad was a dentist and I remember, uh, him talking about having, having one patient that come, you know, he would regularly, you know, if somebody comes in for a dental procedure, obviously you end up having to apply a topical anesthetic or even yeah. injecting something, uh, you know, doing something to deal with the pain. Pain management comes with the territory of mm-hmm. dentistry. But he had like on one occasion in his, uh, you know, decades of experience, had one guy come in and they were preparing to, to do a fairly, uh, um, painful procedure. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly what it was, but it was, it was not just a cleaning <laughs> right, by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. There was some actual, uh, digging around involved. There was blood involved. Right. And, and my, my dad was like, all right, well, you know, time to, to numb you up. And the guy was like, I'm good. And, and my dad was like, are, are you, I don't think you are because I, I really need to numb you up for this because <laughs> this is what's about to happen. And the guy's like, no, I, I never, I never take any kind of, uh, uh, a medicine when I, when I come into the dentist. And, uh, so my dad was like, oh, all right. You know, he's kind of begrudgingly agreed to, to, to at least start. Yeah. And, and ended up the guy didn't take any pain med- medication for the entire procedure. And, and, uh, my dad would talk about it. He was like, he, he said, I just felt weird doing it. I felt, it, right, right. You know, it felt like you're, you're tormenting somebody, but they're not feeling any pain. And, um, and as it turns out, this was not, just this one dude. <laughs> there are uh, it's rare, but there are individuals who who don't feel pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, I was reading a study from uh, Dr. Geoff Woods uh, camp from the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research, and uh, they ended up bringing together a number of children. Uh, well, they had been some of them had grown up and or you know or teenagers uh, by the time the study came around. But uh, growing up, they reported to never have felt pain. And they, they analyzed them and they found there was nothing wrong with their nervous system. It mm-hmm. wasn't a situation where they had some sort of, you know, you know, some sort of like leprosy type of a condition. Um, they had normal intelligence. They had normal nerves and the nerves seemed to conduct signals normally and their brains seemed to be put together normally. Mm-hmm. So it didn't make any sense based on uh, their current theories of pain, but they were able to isolate a gene called SCN9A. Uh, that is very highly expressed in the pain sensing nerves. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a number of, of research just, and we're continuing to try and understand exactly right. how this gene plays into it. But, uh, but they found that people who, who don't feel pain, uh, as well or at all, they also may not be able to, um, detect certain odors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they've also found that, uh, this is from another uh, study, the, uh, the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research, they found that people who suffer from os- osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. patients that reported higher levels of pain were more likely to carry a particular DNA base at certain locations in this same gene as seen, uh, in 9A. Oh, okay. So we, get, we see the opposite there where it sort of tweaked another direction yeah. and it creates a higher sensitivity for pain. So, in so there's a, like there's to boil it down to like the most basic. It's like there's a connection missing between that perception of pain right, and that nerve. Right. It's highly possible that some martyrs in the past right. um, may have just been in a, a particular situation genetically to where mm-hmm. they did not feel pain as strongly or at all, which would certainly help you if you were say to be, uh, you know, boiled alive. That's just cheating. Well, it, I guess it is, but then. Believing in something strong enough to escape from your torments, that's kind of cheating too. That's the whole thing. Martyrs are cheating the system right. and sticking it to the man. So like the, these days though, instead of like being a, well, I mean, you, you can still obviously be a martyr in, in many different ways, but maybe you would just do like a sideshow act with like the Jim Rose 
circus. Yes, or but but then you're not you're you know it's like you said to be a martyr at the top of the podcast to be a martyr you can't be that concerned with material possessions. Yes. And if you're cashing in on your uh, your your inability to to feel pain, then you just clearly weren't set out for martyrdom. Even yeah, if you have yeah. some very cool key skills there to implement, it's not your bag. Yeah, you mentioned endorphins earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, endorphins are, of course, this natural uh, painkiller that's released in the brain. And there have been studies that shown that uh, practices such as prayer and meditation actually can help uh, further release these endorphins and, in theory, the pain threshold. Yeah, and, and this was interesting. This is from the lab. Uh, researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and UCLA have shown that rats don't respond to painful stimuli in the presence of a predator or when the rats are in an environment that provokes fear because, say, they had previously experienced a painful stimulus in it and they experience uh, released opioids, again, natural painkillers uh-huh. from their cells. So it's almost like it was hard-coded once they had the experience. And, you know, if it's a sense of danger could actually squelch pain in rats. But, yeah. you know, certainly you can take that information and apply it to humans and, um, you know, possibly the same sort of conditions could be met. And also there's something to be uh, be said um, about this. Uh, when you feel the endorphins released uh, in, by pain, you can mm-hmm. sort of feel like a rush. Say if you're getting a, a, a tattoo yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, there's a certain like high you end up getting uh, just from the discomfort of the procedure mm-hmm. that I can't help but think uh, on some level might play into uh, into some of this uh, transcendence of pain. You know, I'm granted getting a tattoo is rather different from being boiled alive or roasted in a brazen bowl. No, but it is all psychological, right? Because yeah. um, and, and I've read something about that, too, that, again, this sort of that that high, that reward that it depends on if you're, you know, you know what it is you're holding out for or enduring. Um, maybe it is to be you know, immortalized. Right. It, um, and again, the endorphins are hitting and it feels like, oh, okay, well, yes, I'm, um, or you're an athlete. This is a good example. Right. You're running through the pain mm-hmm. um, because you're motivated to do it. You're motivated to win. Feel and the you, burn, right? Yeah, feel the burn. And uh, and you're also getting a bit of a high. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it sort of depends on, on what's on the other side, I suppose. I've also heard some uh, athletes um, and, uh, well, you know, Sort of hobby athletes who have uh, discussed the how when they're pushing themselves really hard, they mm-hmm. also feel like they're kind of punishing themselves. So I can see wow. that also kind of playing into. So the it's whole. sort of like a transcendence in a weird yeah. way of of uh, their physicality, but maybe some sort of I don't know psychological, spiritual level. Yeah, it brings to mind this uh, this quick quote from uh, Rumi, the 13th century Persian Muslim poet. He said, "Pain is an alchemy that renovates. Where is indifference when pain intercedes? Beware." Do not sigh coldly in your indifference. Seek pain. Seek pain, pain, pain. I love that because I always think of Rumi as being this incredibly romantic yeah, poet. Yeah, most, most of what you hear from Rumi is very <laughs> romantic. Certainly not pain, pain, pain. Yeah, yeah. But it is interesting. I mean, we are so highly motivated by pain and it certainly helps us learn, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, we so much of our experiences of becoming a human are all about avoiding pain. Yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, our actions are uh, certainly derived from that motivation. Yeah, indeed. So now that we've wrapped up uh, martyrs in pain, let's let's see what sort of non-painful stuff has come through the mail. Oh, you want me to pull from the, the non-painful uh, listener mail pile? I didn't know we had a painful one. We do have a painful folder, yeah. yeah. We- <laughs> it's Luckily, it's not very big, but, but we have a few painful emails in there. No, but this is from the, the good pile. We heard from Gabriel. Gabriel writes in and says, dynamic duo, Robert and Julie. 
Hey, that's, that's, that's us. Yeah. It says, greetings from Iraq. I am writing at you today from the center of civilization, a.k.a. the Fertile Crescent, Iraq. I am a combat engineer in the U.S. Army on my second combat tour. I have had the opportunity to have wireless Internet and have been able to download many of your podcasts, and I listen uh, to each evening. During the day, while on patrol in MRAP, that's mine-resistant uh, armored patrol vehicle, I replay the podcast I listened to the night before over the headset. It is great for breaking up the monotony of looking for IEDs and talking about the usual Army-related stories. My soldiers have learned about many interesting things, including wasps and bees, brain-wiping, and micro-drones. They especially like the episode on nightmares killing people. After spending almost an entire year in the southern part of Iraq near the Iranian border, I have often wondered what made this region of the world such a good spot for the beginning of civilization. I read recently that this part of Iraq, the Fertile Crescent, has changed significantly since the days of Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm and that its present environmental condition could not support the civilizations that existed long ago. Have you ever considered a podcast discussing this fact? In summary, on behalf of myself and my soldiers, I just wanted to extend our thanks to the both of you. Sitting in a convoy of vehicles with the with the same guys for almost 12 hours a day is kind of like taking a year-long road trip, but on the same roads. Almost like a Twilight Zone episode. In, in your own way, you are both doing great things for your country. Gabriel. Oh, man, that was yeah, really nice. that's a really nice thanks, one. Gabriel. Um, that's... Wow, and what a description too! I had never thought about that. It's like this this uh, sort of like road trip analogy. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, um, and uh, I think that the Fertile Crescent is fascinating. That that's definitely one that we're going to need to to cover because, I mean, we can talk about that from so many different perspectives, archaeological, uh, cultural, and so on. Um, so thanks. Yeah, and and by all means, thank you for your service to our country. Yeah, uh, all you guys, if you happen to be listening right now. So, if uh, if anyone would like to share anything with us, there are many ways to get in touch with us. Uh, we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. We're Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can also drop us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. <laughs>